Freedom is like a religion to us. Justice is just positioning us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough, sings John Legend in common. We hear at Solutions of Violence and our guest today, Professor Cedric Powell, also believe freedom is like a religion and justice is just a positioning us. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMT LP 106.5 FM. And you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jamie McMillan here with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMT's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you would like to share your views, we want to hear from you. Please contact us by sending us an email to solutions to violence18 at gmail.com. As Jim said, our guest today is Professor Cedric Powell. Dr. Powell is currently a law professor at the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law. Cedric Powell received his doctorate of jurisprudence in 1987 from New York University School of Law, where he served as managing editor of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. Prior work experiences, including a judicial clerkship, the International Office of American Civil Liberties Union, and the litigations associated with the New York Law Powell is a member of the Ohio and New York State Bars and is admitted to practice before the United States Supreme Court and U.S. Federal Court. Professor Powell has written over a broad range of topics, including affirmative action and the critical race theory, the First Amendment and hate speech, the 14th Amendment and structural inequality. Professor, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, you have a BA in politics from Oberlin College and a doctorate of jurisprudence from New York University. Why study and teach politics and law? Engineering, medicine, and business probably provide more economic security. Why teach? Oh, teaching isn't a, a poor profession. I think you have to look at what you're interested in. I think people may think those other professions like engineering, medicine, and business administration may pay better, but I think that that's all relative. When I I worked at a major firm in New York. There was certainly great compensation, but I think I get compensation from teaching great students, doing great research, and impacting public policy in major ways. So I think you can't really put a, a quantitative value on that type of impact. And so it's not an either-or choice between sort of an instrumentalist approach. Uh, I'll do this and make these certain things to get this certain money you always have to look at the impact you're making in society. So I think it's a good choice. And I think uh, most professors would tell you that. Well, we agree, Dr. Powell. Jim and I are both are retired teachers. You have written extensively on critical race theory. It's not a hot button issue. Conservatives have leverage to gain political advantage, arguing that their case is against it. Some claim teaching critical race theory will cause division between whites and people of color. Teaching critical race theory, they say, will also cause emotional trauma for the white student. Would you explain critical race theory for us and, and give us your opinion as it relates to creating division and emotional trauma? Good. So this has been an ongoing debate in a very fraught time. I think that people have used critical race theory to be a rhetorical device for anything that causes racial division in society. So it serves as a trope for indoctrinating students, stigmatizing people of color, stigmatizing white students, dividing us culturally, and really advancing this notion of wokeness, which is in vogue now 
that you're imposing these self-righteous views on the American populace and making them think a, a certain way. Critical race theory does none of those things. Critical race theory focuses on structural inequality and systemic racism and the continuing effect of racism in this society through its laws, through its institutions, through systems and practices, which actually perpetuate and reinvent racism century after century. The period that we're in now is really the third reconstruction. Think about it. We've tried to have racial progress in three major periods in our, in our uh, nation. One was right after the Civil War, that 12-year period where you have reconstruction and Congress being actively involved in enacting legislation to eradicate discrimination, to welcome African-Americans into American society. So look what Congress did. It passed the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment, equal citizenship and due process rights, and the 15th Amendment, voting rights. 15th Amendment was passed in 1870. And so you have this period of only 12 years where there's great racial progress, and you had the U.S. Supreme Court actively involved in dismantling that progress in cases like the civil rights cases, which totally gutted the first wave of civil rights legislation, particularly the Civil Rights Act of 1875, all the way up to Plessy versus Ferguson, which constitutionalizes the colorblind notion, but turns it inside out to make it uh, separate but equal. And that really codifies the color line and Jim Crow going forward. So you have from 1896 all the way to Brown versus Board of Education. And Brown versus Board of Education really is the second reconstruction where we have civil rights gains and all of that. And then we had a, a low period. And now we're in the third reconstruction right after President Obama's presidency, two-term presidency, and the white last reaction to those eight years. And we see that in the form of the former president. But that brings me to the context that we're in now. There's been a backlash against any discussion of race, whether you're talking about racism, whether you're talking about structural inequality, whether you're talking about people being denied the right to vote. Everything is supposed to be post-racial and there should be no discussion of race. So critical race theory then becomes a target in society. Critical race theory certainly highlights race, but it looks at the effects of racism. So the major tenets of critical race theory are is that race is socially constructed. In other words, you see this in Plessy versus Ferguson, where we're really looking at a formal definition of race. You recall that the litigation in Plessy versus Ferguson was brought by Homer Plessy, who looked like he was white and wanted to ride in the front of the streetcar in New Orleans, but they used the one drop of blood theory to say you're still African-American. So we've had this notion of formalized race uh, in our society, and we've used that to determine who can belong and who is excluded. And one way we've done that is to construct a color line where white is the normative guiding principle in terms of racial relations. And we see this through all of the groups that we talk about. Chinese Americans, they were excluded until we needed them for labor. Mexican-Americans, we give them federal citizenship after we conquer and annex their lands, not giving them full citizenship. Uh, Native Americans and indigenous people saying that they have sovereignty, but undermining their right to sovereignty in a long line of worthless treaties. So in each of those instances, 
we've taken race and used it in order to oppress and subjugate. So race is socially constructed. Another thing in, uh, is that the permanence of racism, racism uh, really doesn't go away. And that's why we have such a difficult time talking about it because people get upset and it's an awkward conversation where you say that racism is permanent and it reproduces itself. You notice in the current debate, people are saying, well, you must hate America if you bring this up. And a critical race theorist would say, no, I don't hate America. I want America to be what it proclaims to be. And it really never has in terms of some groups of people. So the permanence of racism is a, another thing where you look at systemic inequality, structural inequality, and the impact of the past discrimination on present day. Another component of critical race theory is intersectionality. In other words, no one has just one single identity. They have many identities and race is one of those. So an African-American woman will have a different experience than a white woman because she's African-American and her gender is woman. So she will be treated, constructed, positioned in a very different way than a white woman. So intersectionality is another tenant. Another is interest convergence. We make very little racial progress unless it is connected to some type of appeasement on the behalf of whites. In other words, there will be no advancement unless it is conducive to advancing white interests. Brown versus Board of Education is an excellent example of that. Uh, a lot of people don't know that Brown could have come out the other way, but a number of things happened on the court. Judge Vincent passes away uh, that summer before, and they have re-argument. But also during this time was the Cold War, and the United States was going across the world internationally talking about democracy and freedom. And so Russia would say, well, how can you talk about democracy and freedom and you are oppressing uh, black people and people of color? And so it came about that in order for the United States to be able to preach democracy and not be a hypocritical nation, it had to pass Brown versus Board of Education. And that's why it's a, it's a unanimous decision. Some people would argue cynically that not because of any altruistic reason to help uh, African-American and children of color to break the color line. That's a nice byproduct, but some would argue that in order to be seen a certain way internationally, this decision had to come out a certain way. And it's not too cynical to say that after we passed Brown and Board of Education, nothing happens for 14 years. There's a case in 1968, Green versus a county school board that says it's been 14 years now, nothing's happened. The U.S. Supreme Court says we want realistic remedies that promise to work realistically now. And so from that point on, there's this back and forth about how much progress can be made. This is a key example of structural inequality as well, because we have retrogressed. We've gone back to uh, resegregation. And so Brown, some people would argue, and, and I do too, has been largely unsuccessful. There was a period in the 70s and 80s where there was integration, but we've gone back because of a horrible case decided in 1974, Milliken versus Bradley which stopped school busing and desegregation at the school district line. And what that does is it creates an enclave, an inner city enclave of all African-American schools and suburbs in the outer suburbs. And the reasoning in that case was the suburbs did not discriminate, so they should not be part of a desegregation plan. 
And there are countless decisions like that that critical race theorists would critique as really advancing inequality under the gaze of neutrality. In other words, we're treating everyone the same. We're not looking at race. We're post-racial. But in every instance, it perpetuates some type of inequality and subjugation. So critical race theory really examines those theories. And it doesn't try to make people feel bad or point at white people or individuals on any level as being guilty for what is happening in America. It really asks, are you going to join the effort in dismantling structural inequality? Are you going to be more than an ally? Are you going to be an active participant in making America what it truly claims to be? So, Professor Powell, part of your scholarship, and I'm quoting here, critiques neutrality, you mentioned that, as a means of preserving structural inequality and advances theories of substantive equality, which reject colorblindness and post-racialism as normative principles in constitutional analysis, end quote. Groups that are attending public school board meetings and accusing public school systems of teaching critical race theory often hold up signs that state, quote, we all belong to the same human race, end quote, and, quote, we are all the same, end quote. Those signs sound innocuous, maybe even righteous, but there is a hidden agenda here. Explain the thinking behind the signs and explain why those signs are at best misleading and according to some, a dog whistle that supports white supremacy. Oh, certainly. And and we're way beyond dog whistles now. I mean, it was uh, nice and uh, neutral when we had someone like Ronald Reagan. He would, he would speak about it in neutral terms. But the former president has unleashed this notion that you can say anything that you want to. And the First Amendment has really been weaponized in, in such a way that we say, well, we had a marketplace of ideas and the good ideas will, will win out over the bad ideas. But that isn't true. That really doesn't work because you need access uh, to the marketplace. I think what's happening at the school board meetings is reprehensible. You have uh, these parents who have not educated themselves fully about critical race theory or any theory or any curriculum. And they're using this trope as a, a means to take out uh, their frustrations. What this is really about is being uncomfortable with demographic changes in the United States. And of course, demographics is not destiny, but now we have to deal squarely with diversity. And the examples that you pointed out are really neutral ways of diluting the entire conversation. We're all the same. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. We're all part of the human race. All of those things are true, but they have the intended effect of submerging the real issue, of making the real claims of people of color who are oppressed and subjugated, making that secondary to whatever the message is. So that's what you were talking about in terms of white supremacy. A major tenet of white supremacy is we get to determine the parameters of the debate. And this is just a diversionary tactic to supplant the real discussion that we should have. And that is, how do we give our students a full and comprehensive education? That certainly isn't indoctrination. That is giving our students the critical tools to be public citizens, which is what schools are supposed to do. You give the students all of the information and they make an assessment. And history isn't beautiful. I think that 
people are trying to codify or constitutionalize this beautiful storytelling linear version of history where the United States always comes out on top. We were always benevolent. This is the greatest place on earth. But you don't hate America if you point out the gaps in that history, if you point out the imperfections, if you point out that these great founders were human beings with great imperfections who knew that they were doing something wrong, but still talked in these lofty terms. And so they set the stage for this dichotomy and this tension that we're feeling even to this day. And so all of these neutral moves should be rejected. If we were all the same, why are some of us still treated differently? If we're all the same, why were some of us slaves? If we're all the same, why are we still fighting the same battles uh, that we have been fighting since the first civil war? And in fact, we're really having another type of war and reconstruction, trying to figure out is this a, a democracy? We have one political party that is so cynical that it is not even invested in any type of ideas to attract people to the party. They've taken a cynical gamble on uh, racial populism, not even a dog whistle, just saying that there's some of us who belong in America and some of us who don't. And so all of this rhetoric, all of this neutrality, all of this talk about insurrectionists being a patriotic tourist, these are ways to cover up the real discussion that we must have, and that's how do we save our democracy? Because the Republican Party is completely bankrupt of any ideas. They have taken a bet that the best way to advance and hold on to power is through scare tactics. Oh, people of color are coming to your suburbs. They're taking over your schools. They're indoctrinating your children with critical race theory. They're taking over local school boards. And that's where all of this violent reaction is coming from, stoking up these racial insecurities that has always lied at the America's core, but now weaponizing them in such a way so that one party can retain power. So this, this is where we are now. And we have to figure out a way to save our democracy. And the only way to do that is to take a sobering, complete, and comprehensive review of our history and its present day impact on the state of affairs. CBS, NBC, ABC, and CNN news cover demonstrations by groups who have interrupted public school board meetings in cities across the country, accusing public school systems of teaching critical race theory to middle and, and high school students. Dr. Marty Polio is the superintendent of Jefferson County Public School System. Marty appeared on Senator Gerald Neal's live broadcast, FaceTime, Great Talk. Dr. Polio explained that no school in Jefferson County public school system teaches critical race theory. Superintendents and school board members from other school systems have also explained that they do not teach critical race theory. As you pointed out, this theory is a concept meaning to dispute, or it's a point of assertion. It's to carry out a lawsuit, uh, litigative, I think is the term. This concept is one only taught in university law schools. If public schools are not schools of law, which they are not, why are these small but highly vocal groups willing to dis disrupt public school board meetings and accuse them of encouraging or mandating teaching critical race theory? It's the perfect rhetorical move to avoid talking about race in any way. It is the perfect example of post-racialism. It's the perfect example of 
whites generally saying, we don't want to deal with race. We've dealt with it enough. You have rights just like we have. And if we keep talking about this, you're going to diminish the way that things are. We want to make America great again. We want things to be the way that they were, where everyone knew their place. And those places may not have been marked as they were in the old days with, with signs, uh, but everyone knew their place in terms of the way that subordination takes effect in society. So critical race theory, the way that it is employed at the school board meetings, is really just a game that they're playing. They're, they're taking critical race theory and dumping everything in it. We don't want a complete depiction of U.S. history in our textbooks. We just want Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. We had a civil rights movement and everything's okay now. And anyone who complains or talks about race is a racist themselves. And so this is just a mechanism to shut down the conversation and preserve the status quo. So I think the discussions that are happening at school board meetings really have nothing to do with critical race theory. Critical race theory is a trope, a empty vessel, and you pour everything into it. We don't want to talk about race, critical race theory. We don't want to have a full history that's going to make us feel bad and you're going to make white people feel like they were racist. We don't want to talk about that. You're stigmatizing our students. We don't want the school board to embrace diversity and equity. That's too much race talk. That's critical race theory. You're indoctrinating our students and making them social justice warriors. We don't need that. What we need is everyone to be treated the same. And of course, that's a fairy tale because all of those discussions really center on a particular view of America. And that view is that there is no conflict because we don't acknowledge anything that is bad. And if you do, you are unnecessarily bringing up race in a way that is divisive, that puts us into racial tribes. If we just all work together, then everything will be fine. And so that is what's happening at these school board meetings. In full disclosure, I uh, testified in front of the Jefferson County School Board as well, talking about critical race theory, just to some of its board members. And it was a, an open meeting. Not many people came and, and there were security guards around. That was, that was extraordinary to me to see the school board under attack. A lot of the people that show up to, at the meetings don't even have students in the uh, school system. And that shouldn't preclude you from participating, of course not. But it really underscores how this notion of critical race theory is being weaponized to serve many devious political purposes. So I think some people are really receptive to this argument that we are under siege by other than us, people who don't belong and they're trying to take over. And we want a sense of order. When everyone wants a sense of order, they lean towards a authoritarian figure like the former president. And whatever he says that appeals to their insecurities, their reluctance to even look at themselves and take a self-reflective look at the nation, that's why we are where we are. So the teaching of critical race theory is only part of the issue here. Here in uh, Kentucky, BR-60 and BR-69, pre-filed by Republican Joe Fisher and Matt Luckett, are intended to impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history in our public schools and universities. The Fisher-Lockhart bills are also designed to impede the teaching of the history 
of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement. The Fisher-Lockhart bills are based on the pretense that teaching Native American and African-American history to middle school and high school students could cause emotional stress to an individual student. But like critical race theory, the African-American, Native American history taught in public schools, middle school and high schools, is about oppression caused by institutions. Teachers who teach Native American and African-American histories are not accusing individuals of racism or oppression. The history is concerned with racism and oppression caused by institutions, as you have formerly stated. Isn't that correct? Yes, it certainly is correct. And I have debated one of the legislators who did this bill. And first of all, let me just say this. I think the bill is is unconstitutional. There's no way that it can survive constitutional scrutiny. It tries to regulate the content of speech in schools. It tries to make the state the determinant of what people are taught in schools. And it's so broad and ambiguous that I think it will chill all speech. Every, every teacher will be afraid about whether or not they're teaching the right thing. It could be subject to criminal penalty or civil penalty. I mean, this is straight out of the 20s. It's so awkward and, and uh, constitutionally void. That's, that's one thing. The other thing, and I think you asked this is true, it certainly is true. What is striking about these bills that, that I've looked at is they're really memory laws. They want to codify a certain depiction of American history, erased of all of the unpleasantness of racism, structural inequality, subjugation and brutalization of many people, African-American, Mexican-American, Asian-American, indigenous people. And when I say race is socially constructed, each of those groups has a unique history in the United States in terms of how they were oppressed. And they're oppressed because of their race. African-Americans were slaves. So we have that whole progression. Indigenous people were already here and they were told that they weren't here through something called the doctrine of discovery. When we come here, we discover everything, including you. You're not using the land in the right way. So we're gonna take it from you. And we're gonna do it in a number of different ways. First, we'll try with a treaty. If that doesn't work, we'll try moving you off. And if that doesn't work, we're just going to annihilate you. And that that happens over and over again in uh, the relationship with uh, indigenous people. Chinese Americans, we don't want you here until we need you here to build something. We need you to build a railroad. Okay, come in. We're finished with the railroad and you're taking away jobs from other workers. We're going to have the Chinese Exclusion Act get you out of here. Mexican Americans, you already own Mexico and the states around it that, that will later become the United States, but we're going to annex that. We're going to give you a second layer of citizenship, and we're going to tell you if you work hard, maybe you can become an American citizen. So all of these things need to be known by uh, students. That isn't critical race theory. That's our history, our complete history. And most of the history books are subpar in our educational system not because of how they're written or what's in them, because they are incomplete. And so you're not indoctrinating students. You're not making students feel bad. You are giving students the respect that they deserve, treating them as free thinking, critical thinking individuals who are developing into engaged public citizens. And we are being paternalistic and really embarrassing ourselves the way that we treat our children by saying they can't handle this because 
is something bad. Everything is not a fairy tale. So students need the complete story. And these bills, they try to codify a particular memory. They try to insulate feelings and sentiments legislatively. And you really can't do that. You have to have a full discussion. And the and discussion isn't accusatory, as you point out. This history is concerned with racism and oppression caused by institutions. And it's perfectly fine to have that discussion, particularly if you're talking about how great America is. Equal justice under law, that's on the front portico of the United States Supreme Court building. Then what does that mean? We can't have all of these monuments with all of the fancy words on them and they're meaningless. And so part of being the America that we purport to be is for our students to have the full history. So that not, not only that, so that they won't repeat the same mistakes that we did in our past, but they can make America better. Dr. Shelley Thomas, professor of University of Louisville teacher education program stated on Solutions to Violence from July 19th, 2021st, that learning the history of African-Americans, Native American history, and the history of LGBTQ and women's rights movement, all history contributes to the development of critical thinking skills for both white students and, and other students. Dr. Lisa Wilner, a clinical psychologist who appeared on Solutions to Violence on November 8th, 9th, and 10th, also believes that learning those histories is important to the development of critical thinking skills. If you agree with Dr. Thomas and, and Wilner, explain why acquiring critical thinking skills are, are important to a person who is a citizen who resides within a representative democracy. Oh, it's extraordinarily important. And uh, Dr. Thomas is a good friend and colleague of mine at the university. So I, I certainly agree with what she's saying. I think the point that both scholars are making, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Wilner, is that education serves many purposes. First, we want people to acquire skills so that they will be marketable. There's that instrumentalist concern that we talked about earlier, uh, making money. We have to do that because we're, we're in this particular marketplace. But there is a broader public purpose to education, and that is developing students to be true participants in democracy, true public citizens. And our institutions and our values are much stronger when we have citizens who know what those values are and are actively engaged in advancing them. And so these critical thinking skills, getting the entire history, will allow the student to make an assessment about the United States and what it means. Not hating the United States, but a self-reflective national study about what the United States is. And we have on the one hand, all of these lofty goals, we must think that those goals mean something. So when you articulate these goals, how do you make them a reality? It's not enough just to say equality under law. What does that mean when you have mass incarceration and disproportionate impact on people of color and all of those things? And so you will, giving students these critical thinking skills allows students to make assessments about what America is and their place in it. And so it's important to have that because what's happening now is there's a, a skewing, a disconnect between what America is, the depth of our citizens' knowledge, because they are just on the internet, they're not reading books, they're not understanding, they're not stepping back, they're not reading and assessing what America is, they're not looking at policy, they're looking at polemics, they are getting whatever they get in terms of slogans that you can't really analyze. 
And so there's no analysis. There's only this way or that way. And there is no nuance and complexity. There are many sides and levels to many issues. And in order to be a complete, engaged, fully thinking individual, you have to understand uh, how these arguments work. So I certainly agree with Drs. Thomas and Wilner that acquiring these critical skills are important uh, to citizens who reside in this representative democracy. In other words, our values and norms are meaningless if people don't actualize them as citizens. They have to embrace them. So this whole discussion that we're having about voting rights is a, is a prime example. You know, this notion that a vote is fraudulent if you don't win is another way of being totally ignorant about politics and society and how things work. The argument cannot be, I lost, uh, therefore the election was rigged. The argument probably is I lost and maybe I need to look at my ideas or maybe I need to get some ideas to engage. But we're going around in circles because the only thing we look at is wins and losses and whether or not a fraud exists where none exists. And so we're starting at that standpoint without being actively engaged in the validity and substance of ideas. Cedric Powell, here's my next question. As BR-69 will impede the teaching of African-American and Native American history in colleges and universities as well. So if BR-69 becomes law, will the law affect the histories you teach and the way you conduct your law classes at the University of Louisville School of Law? How so? Well, I, first of all, I don't think it's going to be constitutional. And if it is passed, I hope they're active litigation efforts uh, all the way through the course to declare it's constitutional. And, and if that happens, I'm, I'm game. Whatever ACLU, NAACP, if they're doing something, I want to help in any way I can because it's totally unconstitutional. If it does become law, my answer would be that we have to challenge it. It certainly wouldn't change the way that I teach. I would still teach race and the law as I do. I would still teach critical race theory as I do. And if there was a challenge there, I would face it. But I, I think BR 69 and 60 are, are patently unconstitutional on a number of different levels. It's content regulation, strict scrutiny unconstitutional. It is vague, overbroad, and ambiguous. It chills speech unconstitutional. It's a attempt to displace the power of local school boards to determine curricular initiatives. We've always looked at local school boards as the place where school policy is made. That would probably make it unconstitutional as well. It totally reorders what we're talking about in terms of federalism. So if BR 69 is intended to impede the teaching of uh, history uh, in universities, I, I think most universities and departments would, would rise up against that and, and certainly challenge that. So, so I don't think it has a chance. So, but BR 60, BR 69, they come with serious penalties the Kentucky Attorney General will have the authority to fine public school districts $5,000 per day for each day the district is found in violation of the law. Teachers found in violation could lose their certification. So that begs the question, Professor, the Kentucky Attorney General is the, and this is the constitutional question here, his title states he's an attorney. He's not a judge. Judges have the authority to fine and penalize defendants. Attorneys do not possess that power. So attorneys possess the authority to file lawsuits, but they do not have the power to fine or penalize defendants. 
So how is the Kentucky Attorney General, currently Daniel Cameron, can acquire the authority to find public school districts and revoke teacher certification? Yeah. And so, first of all, they haven't become law yet. Second of all, I think there's serious problems with the Attorney General regulating the curricular choices of schools and then penalizing teachers for teaching content that they are certainly constitutionally protected and doing. So this $5,000 per day penalty really shows that they are targeting a certain type of speech uh, and being overly uh, punitive. In some ways, it's a prior restraint. And that comes with a heavy degree of disfavor in constitutional law, because you have the state saying you can only say this or that. And and that is really the the fast track to uh, a totalitarian and, and authoritarian state where you have the state signing off on what is taught and what is displeasurable to the state will be met with a hefty fine. So I think there are clear problems with this as as an enforcement tool. But BR 60, BR 69, similar laws have become law in Southern states. And you mentioned they they probably are not going to meet constitutional muster. But if the Fisher Lockhart bills do become law, a lawsuit is filed, that lawsuit could language in the courts for years, right? It could, it could, and there would be a fight. And so what you would do there is you would say that this is unconstitutional. It it chills learning and speech. It undermines the pedagogical goals of the school. And while we are challenging this, uh, we want an injunction against the enforcement of this rule. And, And so it could go on for years, but we still should be allowed to do what we have been doing in schools for years before this adequate, constitutionally permissible speech was targeted by this legislation. And while we determine its constitutionality, we want this law to be enjoined from being enforced. So, Professor Powell, let's let's change the directions here. You have written this extensively on the 14th Amendment and affirmative action. You already mentioned that. The 14th Amendment has to do with equal protection under the law. So section one of the 14th Amendment states, and we're quoting here, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or amenities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within the jurisdiction of equal protection of the law, end quote. The term affirmative action has to do with a series of laws and executive orders. An example was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, an article titled, quote, 14th Amendment, U.S. Constitution, U.S. Law, end quote, published by Cornell University states, quote, this meaning this, the word this here meaning the 14th Amendment with landmark legislation prohibiting employment discrimination by large employers, employers who employed more than 15 people, whether or not they have government contracts. So that law doesn't matter whether the corporation has a government contract or not, that law still should be enforced. It establishes the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So the 14th Amendment affirmative action litigation was designed to provide equal opportunity for all, regardless of race, gender, or ethnicity. That's correct, right? Yes. 
Yes. However, a study conducted by Northwestern University, Harvard, and the Institute of Social Research in Norway and published in the Intelligentsia penned by Lipitz demonstrates that, quote, employers are still discriminating against African-Americans as if it's still 1989, end quote. Some 24 studies together representing more than 54,000 applications and submitted for more than 25,000 job openings. White applicants received on average average 36% more callbacks than equally qualified African-Americans, end quote. This was an extensive study published in the intelligence year September 2017 that has revealed another level of violence against minorities. What needs to happen here now in order to correct the systemic racism within the U.S. capitalistic system? Additional affirmative action laws based on the 14th Amendment, enforcement of the affirmative action laws. What needs to happen, Professor Powell? Yes, we need a stronger enforcement policy. And enforcement has been certainly inconsistent in our history. You you, you had the Reagan era where the Justice Department was actively engaged in dismantling affirmative action. We, we sort of get it back on track during the Clinton administration, but, but it goes back and forth. And then the, the last administration, administration, the Trump administration, very little enforcement, significantly weakened the Office of Civil Rights, significantly weakened the ability of any of the entities of the Department of Justice to pursue anti-racist initiatives, anti-discrimination initiatives. So I think three things need to happen. One is that we have a Department of Justice that actively is engaged in enforcement. And that is happening now. Merrick Garland and uh, Kristen Johnson are now in the department, particularly with the Civil Rights Division. And I think that the Department of Justice will be totally invigorated with that leadership. So that's one, a, a Department of Justice that enforces. Two is we have to rethink how the U.S. Supreme Court is interpreting these cases. You mentioned employment discrimination. That's Title Seven. Title Seven has really been uh, diluted in a series of rulings that show that the slant has turned to employers. And if an employer can come up with a uh, reasonable business justification for these disparities between black and white, the court will embrace that, that neutral rationale. And so you see over and over again, the U.S. Supreme Court actually protecting business interests and turning a blind eye or, or at least a very skeptical eye at litigation designed to advance anti-discrimination initiatives. So rethinking and invigorating Title VII and other employment initiatives would, would be another thing. And then there's some things that you have to do in the marketplace as well, opening up some of these employment markets by providing incentives, partnerships with colleges and universities to have meaningful internships, which are not just going to lunch and having a mentor, but actually advancing in the uh, company itself. And then monitoring those results, not just simply in diversity reports. So we have two or three people in this department, but who is actively moving up the ladder? Who is in the power suite making those decisions? So I see a three-pronged effort, the Department of Justice that is functioning, energetic and enforcing a reinvigorated anti-discrimination mandate in all uh, federal statutes, including housing, employment, and then a structural solution providing a gateway from colleges, universities, or, or other employment scenarios that allow uh, people of color and other people who have been excluded from the marketplace to act
actually move up in corporations, business, the academy in meaningful ways. And the only way you do that is to get more people in the power suite making those decisions. So we always have to do more than one thing at the same time. And this is just another example of that. Okay, so but you don't think we need additional affirmative action law? Oh, I think we have it on the books now. We just have to make it work. And, and we've never really made it work. There's always been pushback against affirmative action by conservatives who say it's simply basing results on race, not being a meritocracy, just putting people in positions because of the color of their skin. You've heard all the arguments before. So, so there's a standstill. We've never really made what we have on the books uh, work. So it's not a question of more. It's making those laws work and, and pushing back against back less when we are making progress. Because whenever we make progress, there's always a, a pendulum swing backwards. That's another tenet of critical race theory that there is a retrenchment and retrogression. Every time we make any small bit of progress, there is a backlash reaction to it. And that's what we're in now. We are reacting to eight years of an Obama presidency. This is what we have. Okay. Yeah. So because of 246 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow oppression, 346 years of institutionalized racism endured by African-American community. Many scholars, Lewis Henry Gates Jr., for example, your colleague, Dr. Ricky Jones, another example, support reparations. If the government decides to pay reparations, what should those reparations look like? Who should get them? African-Americans who can trace their ancestry back to slaves, all people of color. What do you think? See, I think the way that that question is constructed, that's sort of the, the problem that we have. And this is sort of leading out of our discussion with affirmative action. That's why there's so much pushback with affirmative action. It's that these people of color are getting something because they are people of color. Because they are Black, they get something. And so when reparations is framed that way, you get something because you are a person of color and you are oppressed. There will be a white backlash against that. Well, I didn't have anything to do with slavery. That was a 160 years ago, my parents came here and just worked their way up. Uh, why can't people of color do that too? Why did they get extra for something that happened so far ago? So I think the way to approach reparations is to have a, a connection between injury and compensation. People made a big deal about, you know, having Juneteenth as a holiday. That's great. That's symbolic. And talking about Tulsa, the, the burning and destruction of Black Wall Street in the 20s. But there were hundreds of Tulsas. So that's one way to get reparation. We could go back through all of the communities that were destroyed like Tulsa. And Tulsa wasn't a, a singular event. That's the one thing about America. When something horrific like that happens, we're astonished by how horrific it is. And then we try to fetishize it by saying, oh, this is the one time it happened. Let's commemorate it and make it go away. But that is part and parcel of how people of color have been treated in American society. So there are hundreds of Tulsa. One way is to sort of look at Tulsa and then look at economic impact and then make a calculation from then until now and see what that community would have been. So, so that's one way. Look at all of the Tulsa's and make that type of determination. Anyone who can trace an injury in their particular community, what we've done with schools in terms of segregation, what we've done with redlining, you could take all of the things, all of the major components of structural inequality, look at how they impact people of color and then try and quantify it that way. I think if reparations really mean something, it has to be 
quantifiably significant. So we're talking about billions of dollars and there'll be pushback for that. But you can identify places where people of color have been injured and then make an argument for reparations that way. One thing that would always get in the way would, of this argument would be, well, what the black law professors get? You know, what would I get? Do I get uh, $15,000 under this plan? Before Bill Crosby was disgraced, they would say, well, what the Bill Cosby's kids get? And so that's always a diversionary tactic to take us away from what we're looking at. And you notice each and every time that we've talked about these diversionary tactics, they've always focused on the individual. The shift is away from looking at anything systemic and structural and then sentimentalizing it by saying, well, I haven't done anything and, and I'm not guilty and you're making me feel bad or I haven't gained from uh, slavery or anything of that. I just happen to be white in society. But that doesn't look at the benefits of being white. There is a old law review article uh, by Cheryl Harris. It's called Whiteness is Property. And it goes through the whole analysis of how whiteness on some level is a property issue. Not even this white privilege coupled with that privilege is a asset in being white. And that is the way the United States is set up. And so reparations would be certainly an answer to that. Since we have conducted ourselves this way for 246 years and started off with an unequal playing field, how do we come to equalize that field? And I'm not under any illusions that it can be totally equal. There's no way that that could happen. But you can identify structural components of oppression where people have been impacted by slavery and, and, and many other things, and then quantify that in terms of reparations. That is why the 1619 Project was so explosive, because they trace slavery and its manifestations economically through crops like sugar, through, through farming, through redlining, and really shows a straight line from slavery all the way to where we are now. There's this huge economic gap between Black and white and other people of color. It has to be explained some way. It's the 1619 Project does that, but no one wants to hear that. And so that's why the former president comes up with the 1776 Project, which was poorly written, ill-conceived, poorly researched, but it was an attempt to glorify America's past history and discredit the 1619 Project. And it was, was not successful. Cedric Powell, you are a law professor with a degree in political science from Oberlin College and experience in the American Civil Liberties Union in New York. So last year, 44,000 U.S. citizens died as a result of gun violence. Do we increase funding to our police department and charge them with increasing their arrest rate to solve this problem? Locally, Couture Herring, public policy director with ACLU, is concerned with racial profiling, especially after the Breonna Taylor killing. Or do we pressure Congress to pass stricter gun safety laws? Many in Congress, both the state and national level, claim that Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prevents government from passing stricter gun safety laws. What's your strategy here? Okay, so I see three things. Things. Do we increase funding to the police department and charge them with increasing their arrest rate? Locally, should we have laws that pressure Congress to pass stricter gun laws? Uh, and then uh, we 
that's nationally and then locally racial profiling. So I'll take all three in turn. I don't think increasing funding to our police department would do anything. In fact, I think that would make the problem worse. And this is another example, just like the critical race theory trope, we had defund the police. And so that was used and conceptualized and weaponized in such a way that it pushed back against real strong policy suggestions from Black Lives Matter movement and any people who are in the reform and abolition movement of, of mass incarceration. I think that we really need to rethink uh, policing, not the, the whole community policing thing. We need to really rework how we do policing. Policing now is like a paramilitary response in communities. And so when you give somebody a gun and you tell them to stop crime and you send them out into situations that may only call for a therapeutic or medical response, the person has a gun, you know what happens. And it happens every over over and over again, from a traffic stop uh, to someone acting uh, weird on a sidewalk in, in a neighborhood. So the response is always disproportionate in some way. So we really need to look at not just increasing police funding, but looking how policing is done. And that, that may not be a monetary thing. We need to sort of stop recreating the wheel. We bring in a reformer and they do the same thing, community policing, a community review board for police brutality, blah, blah, blah. And, and all of that's good. We've done that, but to do more would mean to take the drastic and radical step of looking at police departments differently. And, and maybe defund is not the right word. Restructure may be a more appropriate response. So it should not be this armed presence where the first response is, is force. That has to be uh, rethought. We have to reevaluate crime as well. What do we arrest people for? Arresting for everything, or do we take a more nuanced approach to, to how we arrest and, and what punishment means and what leniency means? And what does rejoining the community mean? You shouldn't, once you become a, a formally incarcerated, not have any right to vote, not have any right to student loans. So all of these things are connected. And so money isn't always the problem, policy is. And so how do we implement those policies? Another thing that we need to look at again is, is police unions because they have, and it's really interesting, you would have a union for police. They're, they're not you know, like plumbers or electricians or bus drivers. They're doing something really different. They have the power of the state to use legitimized violence. And so I think we need to look at police unions differently because they always support their members, no matter what it is, they'll say, well, this occurred because this is what's happening on the street and we're under siege too. And this was our response. So we need to look at that differently. And so that, that sort of flows into my racial profiling discussion. So I'll leave that alone. But the Second Amendment also needs to be reconceptualized. The Supreme Court invented a Second Amendment right. There is no individual right to bring uh, to bear arms. If you look at that, it talks about a well-regulated militia. That means that the guns are with a certain group of people who have to have them to do what they are intended to do, to guard a community or something like that. Now we have brought in that and over-constitutionalized that now everyone has a gun, uh, concealed or not. Everyone is a patriot. Everyone carries a long gun. 
And, and look at the trial that's happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That's an example of that. I can have a gun, I can carry it anywhere. And that's lunacy. We are in last place in terms of Western democracies with these rights. And our discussions are oftentimes off track because everything starts with this libertarian notion of I am the individual, I determine my own destiny, I can do whatever I want to do because I'm free. And that impacts every dialogue from vaccinations to guns uh, to schools. Uh, the answer cannot be I am a individual and the community is the community and I can do whatever I, I want to do. That cannot be if we have a representative democracy. It means give and take. But when your individual determinations impact the community in some way, you either have to take the consequences or tell the truth or understand that your interests cannot supplant those, the common interests of the community. And that's not communism or Marxism or me being mean and libertarians. It is an honest, candid, and real assessment of what democracy means. It means everyone pulling together to advance a common goal. And that's not what is happening now. Research conducted by the Louisville Metropolitan Police and the FBI demonstrates that gun violence that is now occurring in metropolitan regions is occurring in mostly working class, mostly black neighborhoods. But Steven Pinker, author of the book Better Angels of Our Nature, explains the reason has to do with poverty. Pinker explains that if your rights are violated and don't have the money to hire an attorney, take the offending party to court, you're caught in a Hobbesian trap. The British philosopher Thomas Hobbes explains that if your rights are violated, people witness that violation, and you do nothing to stop the offense, you demonstrate weakness. If you demonstrate weakness under such conditions, you risk becoming a lone wolf. Folks living in middle-class communities possess the resources to hire attorneys who can protect their rights. Question is, does the U.S. legal system afford an advantage to middle-class and upper-class, mostly white Americans, because of their economic advantage? And what can we do? Uh, so critical race theory comes in here again, and it is poverty and race. Uh, you, you certainly can't look at this just as either or class, race, poverty, or race. It's race and poverty. And I think the point that you're making really underscores that we have to look at uh, what is advantaged in society is money and, and whiteness. And that's what we're talking about with, with whiteness as, as property. And so some of the common themes that run through this is, you know, you criminalize Black bodies and you also make their culture pathological. And then that explains uh, why things do, are the way they are. There's more Black crime. But if you look at it proportionally, Paul Butler makes this, this point in his book, uh, Choco, that whites create more crime, actually. You look at the numbers. The U.S. legal system certainly does reify advantages that are baked into the system because of race and race. And economics exacerbates that. And so that's a constant problem that we have in American society that we have to address. So, Professor Powell, we are certainly out of time here. Folks, we want to say thank you to uh, Professor uh, Cedric Powell. We also want to say thank you to our radio audience for listening in. Folks, you can listen to Solution to Violence live stream by visiting us at boardradio.org and choose uh, Listen Live Now. Solution to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. of Oz program featuring Cedric Powell will air again November 16th and 17th. I'm Jump Johnson with my co-host here, Jamie McMillan. Thanks for listening.